One metaphor, I don't know if you heard this, but I use it on training a facilitator and a CEO in, is a beehive. So again, I like principles that you can see across domains. And a, a beehive is an insanely complex adaptive system. A beehive produces like three to five times its weight in honey every season. It's life and death stakes, right? So notice every bee has a role to perform. There's no lazy bees. There are artist bees that go out and explore. Cool. They, on a regular cadence, they come back to the hive. They bring information back. And then there's this very vigorous decision-making process. <laughs> you know? Now we should do this. Bam! Decision gets made and every bee goes back. And you'll see this cadence again. You'll see it everywhere in nature, actually. In, out, heartbeat, breath. That's how we process uh, through all our, our brain, right? We take in all the stimuli. We got to synthesize it, make decisions, and go. And so all I'm trying to create is a beehive <laughs> where the team comes together, boom, goes back after it. That's all. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Lex, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me. I've been really excited about this one. Um, we have a lot to cover, but before we do that, I'm going to start with the questions you always start with me on, which is what's on your mind right now? Yeah. What's got your attention? So what's got my attention is uh, being here with you. And the reason I asked that question is you'll notice at work or in a team meeting, people show up on time, right? We always want to start on time, end on time, but we show up on time and we're all thinking about something different, right? What am I going to do tonight? the fight I just had with my significant other, what I had for lunch, whatever. And just getting your team to say something out loud does an, an incredible job of centering the room. So suddenly if people say a little something out loud, the group's more present. And there's no point having a meeting unless everybody's really present and bringing their full selves into the equation. So that's the spirit of, hey, what's got your attention? I love it. Well, I'm glad you have this on your mind because this is what we're going to do for the next hour and a half. Let's start first with a little bit about your background and kind of story and what kind of led you to start organizational physics, which is how we met. Yeah. So my background is uh, as an entrepreneur, and uh, I was fortunate after um, uh, trying a couple startups, I got I got lucky, right? Often life is timing. <laughs> and uh, I had started a company that uh, ended up to grow to become the world's largest of its type, the largest affiliate marketing company called Commission Junction. And this goes back now uh, to my 30s, and I'm, I'm 50 now. That experience of, of leading a hyper-growth company, right? You know, well, first imagine that's what you've worked your whole life for. That was kind of your, your dream from an early age. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to lead a fast-growing company. And oh my goodness, you're suddenly doing it. And honestly, some weeks, totally exhilarating. Other weeks, freaking debilitating. You know, <laughs> and it just, just depends on the week. You with me? Yep. There's also the old adage of be careful what you wish for. <laughs> but in any, any case, you know, leaving this company and it, uh, from the outside looking in, it's like a rocket. 
And from the inside looking out, it's just chaos, just barely controlled chaos, you know? And I'm, of course, I'm doing all the things I'm, I think I'm supposed to do, right? I'm getting, trying to get advice. I'm reading a lot of management books, you know, between overwhelmed and confident, you know? <laughs> but what I noticed was a lot of the things I would, I was supposed to do would backfire. I, in hindsight, I, I realized like a lot of popular management advice is just wrong or it's, it's suitable for a slower growth, normal paced environment. And like one analogy I use is imagine you're in Holland and there's a, there's a hole in the dike, right? And there's water coming out. Well, is it a problem? Well, I don't know. Let's look, <laughs> let's look over the wall and see what the water pressure is like. And so what I, again, hindsight's 2020, but in such a rapid pace of feedback and change, any little, you know, a small error compounds itself really quickly. And so I got humble and I started to look for new methods and models that I could help me kind of steer this, steer that ship, you know, like to be, do it more effortlessly. Like as an entrepreneur at that time, I felt like my business was several steps ahead of me. <laughs> That's not scalable. As a leader, you got to get several steps ahead of your own company. So I got uh, help from a, a great scaling coach, a guy named Sunil Davidi from the Adesis Institute. And Adesis is kind of a, expert at life cycle management. And so what life cycle management, it means, hey, don't be a moron. <laughs> <laughs> Manage the company to its appropriate stage. Just as you're, if you're a parent, right? You don't, you don't parent your toddler like they're 13 or vice versa. And so a lot of the things I was blindly doing back then, I was applying the wrong a model at the wrong stage or the right model at the wrong stage. If, if, does that make sense? I was kind of trying to do things out of sequence. They helped me to rethink things and kind of put a picture around the situation, a frame. And I've always been super, you know, motivated, like, hey, if I have a sense of what I need to do, I'm, I'm all in, I'll do it. And they really helped me and my leadership team to transform that business and go on to become, again, the world's largest of its type. But that experience of like struggling to scale, failing to scale, and then succeeding at scale kind of inspired me a uh, quest a quest for uh, answers, like deeper insight, like how do I, as a leader, how do I kind of lead more effortlessly? How do I have more presence? How do I stay several steps ahead of my own business so I kind of anticipate, I know what to do, and I can just be a better leader? One thing entrepreneurs often have in common is all or nothing. And I'm a little bit of a strange cat in that uh, <laughs> I change my focus not willingly and not not so consciously at first, but I changed it ultimately like, okay, I'm going to shift from trying to build a business to mastering some tools. <laughs> and I honestly, I thought it would take me like a summer and I ended up spending about seven years of full-time like personal development, questing, seeking, looking for answers, kind of like a mad, a mad scientist. <laughs> and the, the birth of that quest became organizational physics, which is um, a way of, leading and thinking, and it's called systems thinking, right? So systems thinking just means look for the patterns that exist across multiple disciplines, you know, and if you can find a pattern or a model that exists in business, it exists in nature, it exists in engineering, you know, pick your discipline. If you can find those fundamental truths or those models that cut across like 
that's a great indicator. You should double down and really master that model. And so what I do in my work today is a scaling coach. I work with CEOs and leadership teams around the world that are uh, companies are all in ex- expansion stage. So they're kind of what I call between late nail it, which is they have product market fit. They're growing pretty quickly. They've hit the ceiling. The founders know they realize they need to change something, but they don't want to sacrifice that entrepreneurial DNA, their core values, and become just another stodgy old company. I step into that particular transition period and help the the leaders kind of rethink, redesign, and go to the next level without losing their without losing their soul is maybe one way to put it. And what are what are usually the characteristics of like the company that you're describing? Like they, you know, they've been around for a certain amount of time, certain amount of revenue, have a have a leadership team. Like what describe what yes. a company like that might look yeah, like? Common, common set of characteristics are not industry okay. or business model, but it's usually around thirty million, three hundred million in, in annual recurring revenue. Leadership team of seven. What's happening there is like there's a saying like. Hey, everything before product market fit, before your company has product market fit, don't even worry about anything else. Just freaking get product market fit. And you start getting, feel like you're being pulled forward by market demand. And where I specialize is in the problems that emerge after you have product market fit and you're actually scaling up and we're all aware of those problems, right? It's harder. Things get more complex at scale. It's harder for the right hand and the left hand to coordinate. Lots of issues pop up at that stage that just require a different mindset and approach than the mindset and approach to find that initial product market fit. Yep. And we're going to spin this episode going through a lot of things that, that we've worked on and just stuff that I've read. But before we get there, I want to ask you something. One of the things that intrigued me when I was even creating the show notes for here was, I think you said there's like been 160,000 books on Amazon that talk about kind of management and leadership and things of that yeah. nature. Yeah. How do you know? And I know this this isn't. Oh, I'm not asking this for you to like pitch yourself or sell yourself. But like, how do you know all that's wrong and that you're right? Because most people don't know it's wrong until they're like two years into implementing something that you know was wrong. Like, how is it clear to you this stuff just isn't right? Well, let me clarify that. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff out there that is right and is good and is smart and is appropriate and. I'll say for myself, every book I've ever read, I found one good idea out of it. What might be missing though is context, right? And what I like about organizational physics is it 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 takes some first first principles that are true across every system, every discipline, every domain, and then it says, okay, if if those are true, then what is that? What are the implications of that? And so what I like about that is that you can start to take like a Swiss army knife. You can start to take a marketing discipline that you like or a finance discipline or anything and start to add it on to that foundation that will then be appropriate to that stage of development. So I wouldn't say that all these other things are wrong. It's just like, you know, I know you like to read a lot and I read a lot. And before I had built up this awareness in myself, I would take one idea, one idea, one idea, one idea. I suddenly had a mishmash of ideas. And oh my, oh my gosh. Then I try to communicate these concepts to my team. My team's like, whoa, you know, how does this all fit together? What about this other idea from, from two weeks ago? Right. It was really valuable to lay in a meta level 
architecture, mental model, like a meta level for you and your team that all these different ideas can fit on, right? Like we have a common language, common models, common approach. That makes your life a lot easier as a leader and you become a lot more effective if you have that. Got it. I don't know if that makes sense. But. Yeah, it does. So when we first started, you had us take um, tests, but it's also in the first chapter of your book. And, and there's an equation. And now you have me thinking about entropy all the time. But the, the equation was success equals integration divided by entropy. Spend yeah. a little bit of time on what entropy is and then what that equation actually means as it relates to business. Yeah. So if we tune into this truth that every one of us, uh, every, all of our, every company, every family has finite energy and time. That's why we have to eat, right? We have to get oxygen. That's why we have to seek friendships, it, you know, consume information, entertainment from outside of ourselves because we have finite energy and time. That's why business needs sales, right? So that's a fundamental principle. And you can apply it to any system, any level, finite energy and time. Yeah. What that formula means is that success and happiness or anything else you're pursuing has to come from the environment. If there's no oxygen, I'm dead. If no sales, the business fails. So being the integration with the environment is actually the most important thing. And the reason why energy has to come from outside the system is that there's this force called entropy. It just means things fall apart over time. And if entropy in the system is high, it means it's like things are really falling apart quickly. Because we have finite energy, we have to use that energy to try to keep things in check. So imagine a business that's spending a ton of time and energy just trying to get on the freaking same page. We can do it. Yeah, it's going to be harder for that business to be successful, right? Sending its finite energy and time trying to keep everyone on the same page and aligned. If it's easier for two equally matched competitors, if it's easier for one to like align on the same page and get after it, they're going to, other things being equal, they're going to dominate the competitors, right? But okay, so how do you apply this as a leader? It's really easy. It's actually really powerful because no matter the size of the company you're leading, the same principle applies. And what you do is you train yourself to sniff out where there are energy drains showing up. Energy drains are a symptom of entropy. So what I do in my own life all the time is I, I go from the inside out. Okay, how's my physical health right now? It's actually really good. I'm, I have the experience I'm getting more energy from my physical health, meaning the things that I'm doing, right? My diet, my fitness routine, right? My, how I take care of it, it tends to work for me right now. If I notice, ah, you know, it feels like a drain. I, I'm going to trigger my awareness. Ah, I'm going to do something different. What is it? I don't know, but I know this. If I just file it away, it's like, oh, I need to do something different. Like that book, that teacher, that conversation, that insight's going to start to show up really quickly. I go out like, okay, how's my primary love relationship right now? You notice if that relationship's in alignment, both partners feel like they're getting energy from it. And if it's out of alignment, it's a big energy suck. The rest of your life isn't going to be that good or successful because you have to Keep you have to use your finite energy and time to try to repair and restore that relationship. Yep. And you can't compartmentalize energy. It's not like you can have a hundred percent energy at work and zero percent at home yeah, and you get to switch right. between the two. Yeah, it's, it's a myth that uh work and home life are separate. We might like pretend they're separate. You know, I'm gonna compartmentalize <laughs> this fight with my wife. Focus on my job. 
But inside, you know you're not bringing your A game, right? You know that's eating away there. And if we, the longer I found, like the longer we try to maybe avoid, repress, keep the beach ball under the pool, you know, you take your awareness away and like it'll shoot up in some other area of your life. And that's all because of physics, right? It's all because of finite energy and time. And anyway, you can keep the same model going, scanning for energy drains, walk around your business virtually or physically. Where do you intuit there's energy drains showing up? Versus energy gains. Energy gains are a sign of health, right? Flow. This is good. Energy drain. I'm just asking that it triggers in your consciousness. Oh, that's like a hole in the boat, right? If I notice an energy drain showing up between sales and engineering, I'm going to go, ah, that's like a hole in the boat here. I can't sail this thing very far, very fast, or have a lot of fun if we're taking on water all the time. So I want to trigger in your awareness. I'm going to go figure out the root cause there, and I'm going to plug the hole. And if I can plug that hole, it's going to free up more capacity to sail further and faster. As you know, I'm shifting metaphors here, but I think I think that should make sense. And why is it that's like, especially? I don't even think it matters the size of the business, but but in hindsight, it's always easy to see where the energy drains were. But in the present, you can feel them. Like when we started with you. We could feel them and we thought we had some ideas of where they were, but why can't businesses like pinpoint this is where the energy suck is most of the time? This is a, you've been giving me a lot of rope here to hang myself as I'm just talking and talking. So I I appreciate that you're giving me the space and I'm going to try to do my best here. I'm going to segment why it's hard to see where energy drains are showing up in an interpersonal relationship and then also as a leader of a business. Okay. Okay. So on an interpersonal level, if I'm having an energy drain with you, it's going to be showing up because we don't share the same vision and values. That's cool. You could be a great guy, but you want different things than I do. We shouldn't hang out together. Another energy drain will show up in people and teams. If there's a conflict of interest, What's good for the owners is seen as a loss for the employees. What's good for sales is seen as a loss for product. By the way, how you resolve a conflict of interest, and this is why people will say like culture eats strategy for breakfast. It's actually not true. But what they're saying is if we have a culture that's really powerful, it can help uh, transcend natural conflicts of interest. So product can go, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to give sales here. Sales go, I'm going to give the product here because we're all in this bigger mission. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then there's a conflict of styles. And, and what that means is like my approach, my pace, my time horizon, the language that I use, all those things are different than you and different than others. And right, you might have a different style, a different approach to managing the complexities of your environment. And that will naturally create entropy. Okay. Basically here, if you can notice I'm having an energy game with Chris, my relationship's solid. I just want to appreciate that and maybe spend more time there. If I'm noticing I'm having a drain with Chris and that's an important relationship to me, it's going to come in at one of these levels. Like, hey, we have a breakdown of vision and values. Oh my gosh, that's serious. Is this a conflict of interest between us? You know, okay, we got to get together and see if we can't align on a higher order goal or just a style conflict. And what's interesting about style conflict, frankly, is when we're young, we tend to like people who are just like us. And what nature commands from us is actually compliments, people who aren't like us, but compliment us where we're weak. And that allows us to be more in our strengths. 
Okay, any questions about the people side of the equation where energy drains show up? Well, I, I think it, is it, and, and maybe the only question is to identify those drains. That's more of just like talking to people or interviewing them and just saying like, who, who do you like and who do you not like, or who causes you, you know, trouble, who doesn't like, how do you know that you're, you have an ongoing ener- energy drain besides the obvious? Like I always, we never agree. That's obvious one, but yeah. th- I feel like there's some that are if you, if you talk to both people, you'd be like, yeah, we really like each other. Things are great. Like they don't even know that their relationship's not really coordinating and cranking out a lot of productivity. How do you find that? Well, it's subjective, right? But just notice subjectively, if the relationship is working well, both partners feel like they're getting more energy out of the relationship than they're putting into it. It, it just works. Got it. Okay. Okay. Now in organizational physics, we teach a language that allows people to better articulate and recognize in each other the style that's up or the style that's missing from an effective team. And so just having that shared language is a really powerful tool for teams to like go, yeah, that's the, that force is missing from this equation, or I'm really showing this strong force here. You're showing this other strong force there. That's why there's conflict. Oh, okay. We're going to, I'm going to try to give you what you need. So there, therefore you have more capacity to give me what I need. And there's a give and take there. So, but language and awareness, your consciousness is really important in any team, any, any relationship. Okay. Now the harder question to answer and where, where it's really interesting to me is uh, on the business side. Okay. The first energy drain could be showing up because you've chosen the wrong strategy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. That's where the energy is. If you're pursuing, if, if you're zigging and the ins- environment zag, you're going to, life's going to suck. Okay. Cause you've steered into the wrong, wrong environment. And you know, next energy drain will show up just like in the people side, uh, conflict of vision and values. It's a breakdown in culture. So if you have leaders or, you know, senior leaders or owners, especially who have a conflict of vision and values, it's going to lay like, um, hangover over the whole business. Have you ever been involved in a company or an investment where one partner wants to grow and the other wants to sell out? You know, that's conflict of vision, right? Like that organization isn't going to go very far, very fast. You'll see, you'll see uh, camps emerge, right? It's a mess. So that's one area. Now this gets, the next areas I'm going to talk to you about actually create the greatest leverage for change, but they're the most unrecognized. And the first is the organizational structure can create a huge source of entropy in the business. And structure is not the org chart. Structure is how it's designed. Okay, so notice good design supports the purpose of the thing. Yeah, like the chair I'm sitting in, it's a good chair. It fulfills its purpose, okay? Yeah. (laughs) Your organization has a design to it. It doesn't seem as tangible as a chair, but trust me, it's just, it's, it's even more powerful on the performance of the business. Right. And what the structure is, is the functions that need to be performed. So like in the human body, like the heart performs a function, the brain performs a function in your business, customer acquisitions performs a function, finance performs a function. You with me? Okay. So those are the functions. And just like you have to have a healthy heartbeat, you have to have a healthy sales function. Boom, boom, boom. Okay. Healthy brain. Boom, boom, boom. 
a lot of people confuse a structure as a way to a way to maintain a hierarchy or maintain control. <laughs> yeah, I'm at the top. I'm in charge. You know, all things flow up. You with me? Anyone who's been at the top realizes how how flawed that metaphor is. Really, the only reason to have a structure is to push authority deep. Push authority deep so that decision-making, authority, and accountability are closely aligned. So some ways a structure can work against the organization is one, just inertia, right? The, the structure we had that got us to this level the, will can make the inertia of the organization continue to go that way. If your strategy is going in a different direction, you're going to have to redesign, right? Create a new design to get the functions doing locations and the authority they have. You got to change that so that it goes against the others, goes towards the new strategy. That's a hard concept to communicate without pictures. But um, if you have a structure that's no longer in alignment with the strategy, it's going to create a lot of energy drains in the system. Another area that can show a lot of entropy, a lot of energy drains in a business is you have a process breakdown. So let's use a metaphor of sports. Like let's say you're watching a soccer game on the field. The structure would be the roles on the field in the coaches. You know, striker, they're accountable for scoring goals. Defense for playing defense, right? That's the structure. Process would be akin to how they're passing the ball and adjusting to changing conditions. Process breakdown will show up if it's hard for us to get the work done, if we're making decisions quickly, but we're implementing them slowly or haphazardly, those are all signs of a process breakdown. The last area entropy can show up is in the people who are, you know, you're looking for people who fit the culture, they have a role to play in the structure, and they buy into the process. So every business knows, and, you know, where you were looking at before we started working together is the areas of strategy, culture, and people. That's like, those are, so, those are so obvious, they're cliche now, right? But below the proverbial waterline, like the bulk of the iceberg is actually down at the level of structure, which is how, how we're organized and process or how we make decisions. And so if you can get down there and like learn to work at the level of structure and process and change things and be aligned, to be in alignment with the strategy and some fundamental laws of, of organizational dynamics, you can actually catalyze a lot of rapid change, even with the same team. So in my work, I'll go in and we'll, we'll hone in on what the new growth strategy is. I won't change the culture or the people. We change the structure, including the process that team engages with each other in, and you'll get a dynamically different organization with the same team. It's pretty fascinating just because we've changed their roles around a little bit and we've optimized how they make decisions and implement those decisions. You know, so maybe back to the soccer example, like a good coach, he's got, he or she have their team and a structural change would be, I'm going to go to a three forward, one back design. And we're going to really work at how we give and receive the ball under rapidly changing conditions. And they'll see a better team, right? Same thing in a business. Like you got to know when to look at that level and adjust at that level to get the maximum you can. And so when you are now, now we're going to dive a little bit further into like, how do you know where people need to be? And 
I'll let you decide how we answer that. I don't know if we want to layer in the four styles of people, but what you just said is, hey, your culture and your people, I'm not going to change them. What I'm going to do is help you rearrange the playing field so that you're getting the most out of everybody. So from your perspective, and this is where I go back to that question, like how do we know when we're in our own way or not in our own way? What's the methodology and, and what do you think about and how to find out who goes where? Yeah. Okay. So it's actually a great question and you never want to answer that question by starting with people, the people you have. You want to take the people out of the equation. Okay. And start with a blank sheet of paper. And, you know, imagine instead of being a business owner, imagine you're like a designer. Designers going to, they have a set of design rules and they have a concept and they're going to draw that concept out on paper, whether it's a computer or whatever. And then they have something they can talk to and share. And same thing. So you, you, Start with a blank page and there's some design rules for a CEO to design their structure. And just a quick aside, I, I meet some CEOs who try to delegate this. And they can't delegate structural design any more than they can delegate strategy. They're tied. Structure has to support the strategy, not the other way around. Okay, so CEO's got to do this. And the rules are this. One, if the strategy or life cycle stage of the business changes, you got to change the structure. Two, don't let short range functions overpower long range. So describe those. Yeah. So let's use an example in your own life first. Uh, let's imagine you're like working insane hours. Okay. You're under a lot of short range pressure to hit a deadline. Notice that you stop eating as well or working out as often. Or you're less present with your family, right? You're thinking, okay, I just got to pound through this deadline and then I got to take some time off, get my health back in line, think about the future. Actually, that same principle holds true in a business. So some functions need to be under a lot of short-range pressure to meet customer client needs now, like demand generation, sales, okay? Like close the deal. You know, get the customer closing. You want a lot of short range pressure there. But other functions have to keep a longer range uh, time horizon, like brand marketing has to keep a longer range horizon and understand where the market's headed. And it can't let the brand just fall prey to short range pressure. If sales controls the brand, it's going to start to look like a garage sale, right? So you got to understand there's tension there. Like sales is probably never going to be totally happy with brand marketing. Brand marketing is never going to be totally happy with sales, but you got to design your organization so those conflicts between them are constructive to the short-range and long-range execution of the business. And there's a lot of other examples like that of don't let short-range pressure overpower long-range long-range needs. So that was the second rule. Third rule is uh, don't let efficiency overpower effectiveness. So efficiency, that means to make things super dialed in, no errors, controllable, repeatable, scalable. Effectiveness means give a lot of flexibility, risk-taking, trial, error, it's new, it's unproven. Just figure out the right thing to do. Intuitively, you'd never put uh, sales under operations because operations has to be efficient. The minute you put sales under operations or, or an operationally style leader, style leader Sales going to start to show up 
much more methodical, buy the book, follow the process, right? Heck, a CEO that's got a, a cowboy sales team might feel good for about three weeks. <laughs> Finally, those guys are filling out their sales force. Uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Ah, and then they're going to kick themselves because that fire, that drive, that risk-taking, you know, it's going to go away. It's going to dissipate. So these are heady concepts to follow. I apologize to the audience who's still with us. But first three rules, I'll recap. One, strategy, your life cycle stage changes. You got to change the design. You got to change the structure. Don't let short-range functions overpower long-range ones. Don't let efficiency functions overpower effectiveness ones. Okay. Next rule is uh, don't let centralized control overpower autonomy. We, we see this one a lot in society, you know, like who, who of us hasn't felt the overreach of centralized government, you know, or some bureaucracy dictating things from afar, right? At the cost of your own uh, autonomy and agency. Same thing's true in a business. The reason to have a structure, I said, is to push autonomy deep. So that's because we want to empower individuals and teams to make decisions at the point of impact. But we've all also delegated before, and it's been a freaking disaster, right? So some functions, especially those closest to the customer, you need to push a lot of autonomy. But other functions that are more close to the company, you have to keep control over. or Because if you make an error or a mistake in, in those parts of the business, it could cause systemic harm. So you'd want to give autonomy to sales to delight the customers. But heaven forbid you give them autonomy to set their own pricing or sign their own contracts. Really happy sales team, right? Really close to a lot of liability or even a bankrupt business. So other functions like closer to the, the company, like you know finance, accounting, uh, even business strategy, right? Or things that you can't, or brand, right? You can't, or values, right? You couldn't afford a mistake there. It's going to cause... Uh, systemic risk that's really hard to recover from. Now, just notice the, the control side is going to try to continue to encroach and make life difficult for the autonomy side. Right. You with me? Yep. And so as a CEO, you got to be able to have a mechanism to steer the ship, right? To keep those scales tilted <laughs> towards results, effectiveness, autonomy, and not fall over to the side of too much efficiency, too much control right? Things like that. Let me uh, give you the rest here. Then now notice I haven't talked about people. Now I have laid out a design where I can put people into roles where they can focus and thrive. And fundamentally what that means is I'm looking for leaders because things flow from the top down. I'm looking for leaders, the right leader who not only has the skills to, to thrive in a given role, right? But they have the style, you know, they're more effective or they're more efficient. They're more short range or they're more long range. They thrive under more autonomy or they thrive at keeping more control, right? I'm looking for leaders who can fit appropriately into each function and they match my culture. And by the way, things flow from the head down. That's true even in the flattest hierarchy possible. And I'm a big promoter of flat hierarchies, okay? But the leaders of each function, they, they matter because they build things in their own image. And so if you were to make the mistake of giving a leader who's more efficiency-oriented and put him in charge of an effectiveness function, no matter what, they're gonna, that function is going to show up more efficiently, right? So you got to be mindful about 
putting people into roles, especially leaders, into roles where they can focus and they can thrive. And what we do in my work at Organizational Physics is we create a little four-letter code. It's pretty cool. So you know this function like, like product management has a code and we're looking to match the code with the leader, like a key and a lock, you know? And you go, oh, okay. And it's never perfect. But you know how I had that early drive to like be able to anticipate problems in advance? I, if I put a certain style of leader into a certain role, it might not be a perfect match, but I know, I know upfront where that leader is going to need support. I'm going to be able to predict where the problems are going to show up. And I'm going to be significantly further ahead uh, than if I lacked that awareness in that model. So back to your question. Again, I, I recognize this was a long answer to your question. No, it's amazing. You don't know to look at that level, man. You with me? They're operating like with the iceberg underneath them. They don't even know how to look down there yet. They may not have had the time. The business hasn't hit that scale. They haven't had the pain of trying things that are supposed to work and they come smashing them in the nose. So you, you struggle a few times. You start to go, ah, okay, I, I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> What's the underlying causes here? You know, I want to work down at that underlying causal level and that will up level the organization or get it to adjust in a new direction much faster. If we think of your, like a, uh, use the metaphor of a hole in the boat. Okay. There's a reason that. The, you steer from the back. That's where the leverage is, right? Structure and process are like at the back of the boat and culture and people and strategy are at the front of the boat. There are times in its development where you got to, you know, work back at this level, the rudder, and you'll quickly get it to change in a new direction. Okay. So we've gone through the, the mistakes of the organizational structure. And then I want to go through now kind of what we did, which was was a map that you gave us. And it had four concepts on there. And it was how we were able to start visualizing kind of where the work was compar- like how to how to list all the functions of our business and then start finding who does what. And it was four quadrants. Do the right things to get customers, do things in the right way for customers, do the right thing for the company and keep the company out of harm. What does that right. mean? Okay. So I like maps, you know, I like visuals. And when I'm designing a new structure, I, I, all those, I just gave you the hard lesson of all those, those six rules for structure in the sixth one I didn't even mention, but it's a process bring structure alive. Okay. Yeah. You can take those same rules and make it simple to apply them by just getting on paper, these four quadrants. So quadrant one is where you're going to put the tip of the spear or those those business functions that are fundamentally about getting customers. It could be a new customer or a, a repeat sale or whatever. And if your business wasn't a business but an animal, that's where the animal would eat, right? That's where the energy has to come in from. Quadrant two is the leaders there need to get up in the morning and think about, okay, how can I do things in the right way for all customers? That means internal, external customers and internal customers. So that's the quadrant about being more efficient, right? It still needs to be under short range pressure. If we were an animal, that would be where we, the animal digests. In biology, there's a saying that most animals don't die from starvation, they die from indigestion. So those functions in quadrant two that can digest the work and the sales and the customers efficiently, that's where you get operational scalability. Quadrant three 
We got to do the right thing for the company. Uh, and, and leaders here got to think up in the morning and say, hey, what's the right thing to do for the business over the long term? And uh, quadrant three is where if we were an animal, that would be where we evolve. Okay. And if you have, you know, there's a term like no innovation is created in isolation, right? It's like two ideas merged together, or ideas having sex, right? And something new emerges. And so that's quadrant three. We put functions like long range business strategy, R and D, long range brand uh, marketing, communications, longer range development things, even culture and talent would go into that quadrant. Okay. Now, quadrant four is where all the shit piles up. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but quadrant four is where we, we it's got to keep a longer range orientation. It's about keeping the business out of harm, right? Imagine an animal that can't defend itself from internal threats or external threats. It's going to die. And quadrant four is where we have to keep a longer range orientation. We can't fall prey to short range pressure. We got to do things in a repeatable, efficient, secure, quality way. Quadrant four functions would be things like uh, HR admin, legal, controller, compliance. Okay. So just imagine you had those four quadrants. You can start to pretty quickly get your different functions you need in the, the right quadrant. And the secret is that, you know, if I took a function like marketing, that's a loaded term, right? And you can say, oh, it doesn't fit. It's this. It's, qu- it's, it's about getting customers. It's about developing the brand. You know, might even be if it's a compliance industry like health, it might even be up there might even be compliance functions. You with me? Well, that tells you that that's a loaded term and you actually have to think at a deeper level. You have to break that function apart so that it fits cleanly into one of those quadrants. So marketing is a loaded term. I got to break it apart. There's an element of marketing that's about really about getting customers. We call that performance marketing or demand generation. It needs to be under a lot of short range pressure. It needs to drive results for sales. But other aspects of marketing, like brand marketing, strategic marketing, communications, have to keep a longer range orientation. They have to do the right thing for the company. So it's very common to have one head of marketing that's accountable for both of those things. And I don't have to tell the CEOs who are listening the problems that they've run into with that approach. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm getting you to think critically and systematically about the functions that need to be performed. And you go, oh, my head of brand marketing is actually a different style of cat than my head of performance marketing. I'm going to treat those as two distinct functions. I'm going to look to hire or promote there differently because they really are different approaches, different styles, different time horizons in here. Now, every leader on the team has finite energy and time. Wayne Gretzky has finite energy and time. There's a reason he wasn't asked to play defense. Okay? So the easiest thing in the world is to say, F it. I'm going to have one head of marketing oversee both of those. I don't care. Awesome. More power to you. But just recognize that leader has finite energy and time, and they got to split somewhere. Where do you want them split? Another example in this, using the quadrant, these four quadrants for your structural decisions, people decisions, let's use a loaded term like people, human resources, right? Culture. Just notice parts of human resources are about recruiting, culture, uh, people development, performance evaluations, right? That's quadrant three stuff. It's about doing the right thing for the company over time, you know, over the long range, now and over the long range. Quadrant four is about keeping the company out of harm. And there's certainly a lot of HR stuff there, right? OSHA, uh, harassment, defense, you know, uh, protecting employees, compliance, hiring, firing, employment law, tax, like all that stuff, right? 
Okay. It's very common to say, oh, it's our people function. But really, there's at least there's two distinct classes of functions there. And notice, tune in, though, those are different style of leaders. Your HR people leader who's exceptional at recruiting, cultural engagement, right? Developing others is a different style of cat than your head of HR admin who's fundamentally about keeping the company out of harm or should be about fundamentally keeping the company out of harm. And if you co-join those, you'll get in all kinds of trouble. Okay. So if you just take that one HR example, and and there's probably somebody listening here that's like, look, we don't have the luxury of having multiple people in HR. Answer the question of what you just said. There's a recruiter that's totally different from the person that's really interested in like keeping you out of legal trouble. How does a small business then break those functions into two different categories? Does it have to have two different people that even if they're not all in the HR department, are managing each? Or how do you think about it when there's just a lack of resources? You know, I'm working with companies that can make those investments. And yes, that's, it, it, as you design your structure, okay, the functions that you're calling out at some point in the business's development, they warrant their own dedicated leader. Just like on your professional soccer team, you warrant two dedicated strikers and three dedicated midfielders. You with me? This isn't a game of scarcity. We're not struggling to find product market fit. We have a business here that's scaling. Okay. That said, if you can't afford to hire, or you don't have the resource, then you're going to give one leader two hats. Okay. So I'm going to have one head of HR admin who's also wearing the hat as, of head of culture and talent. That alone is really powerful, by the way, because when I'm frustrated at my head of HR admin's ability to recruit me world-class people or to make investments in our culture, I'm not going to blame the fish that the fish can't climb a tree. Okay. I'm asking them to split their focus and they're not even really good at one side of the equation. So the burden should be on me as the leader, not on that individual. Right. And as the business scales, I have a really clear roadmap of where I'm ultimately going to hire to. One thing that's even works well in a, a company that, that can't make a lot of hires or doesn't have a large team is, that sixth rule of structure is process brings structure alive. And like one of the key processes is your, is what I call your leadership team process. And there in the example we're using, your head of HR admin isn't just representing themselves. They're showing up and, and representing HR admin and they're representing people in culture. So when once one of those sides or the other isn't performing well, the whole team knows it. And that'll tell you it's time to make a change, right? It's time to make an investment there. Okay, on one more thing on process, and then I want to start moving into leadership team stuff. How am I going to ask this? Like, your process kind of has to match where you're at, right? If you go to Amazon, they have like the greatest process of all time. We could kind of say like their process has afforded them to become a trillion dollar company. They're all over the world. They can deliver packages in an hour. And when I say that process kind of has to match like who you want to be, Like if you just want to own a local company in Fort Worth that's delivering boxes around town, it's a different process. So my my, I'm trying to ask is, how do you know that you have the process that's appropriate for where you're at in your business? And then how do you know when it's like breaking down? Does that go back to feedback amongst the team? Does does that make sense? It does make sense. So we can I can say this that every business has a near infinite number of processes. That, that small local package delivery company has an infinite number of processes. Because think about it. every A process is a series of actions or steps 
designed to achieve an outcome. So any project you could reframe as a process, any action you could reframe as a process, all the process is attempting to do is to achieve that desired outcome as quickly and efficiently as possible. That's what it's intended to do. And because we have finite energy and time, the organization that has better processes, all things being equal, will dominate the competition. Just like a near equal professional soccer team, the team that can pass the ball better and and changing dynamics is going to win. So what happens though in processes is they have their own inertia, just like everything else in life. And as things are changing, if the process isn't designed to optimize and be refreshed and, and updated, that it's going to start working against the organization. You know, so you ever been in a company where we're working for the processes, the processes aren't working for us, you know, that's inertia is built up over time. Regardless of the size of business, there's, there's really four processes that every business has to master and everything else is just like you said, it's more dependent on your stage, but every company from that small package company to Amazon has these four. Okay. One is the customer journey. And that's that question, like, how do we identify, engage, uh, sell, upsell, retain, manage, delight the customer, you know, through their journey with us? Yeah. And it's, you can just do it. Yeah. If we don't do that process well, we're not going to have a, a business for very long, right? So as a leader, we go back to that first principle of where the energy drains. If you can map out on, and just map a simple on paper, like the ideal customer journey, and then you can map the functions that are, should be accountable for each step. If you notice an energy drain showing up, that's an awesome place for innovation, right? It's going to delight the customers. It's going to make you, that investment's going to make more money because things are going to go faster, easier, less manpower, right? So that's one process. Another is the uh, product development journey. And even if your business is selling services, it's the same principles apply. It's like, okay, how do we identify, innovate, develop, deploy, maintain, our products. And just notice that's not a one-time project, right? That's a process. It has a, it's got a cycle and you got to get better at that product development journey, each iteration. Otherwise the world changes around you and you're no longer aligned and you're done. I mentioned four. The other is the third one is the employee cycle. Like how do we identify, recruit, develop, retain the right staff? Yeah. So and, and that includes everything we talked about, about getting people in the right roles, right tools, so they can thrive and be successful. Okay. So I, you, you have to argue with me that every business doesn't need to master those, you know, and, and if they start to think of it as a process, they're going to really see where they can do uh, innovation and optimization to get more done with less. Last one is the strategic execution process or what I call your leadership team process. And that's the process of identifying, Hey, what strategy should we be pursuing at this stage in our development? And how do we realign and align and measure our success or measure our progress at that over time, now and over time? So it's that it's the process that you allows you to execute and build momentum now and over time. And then God, I'm I'm so fascinated by this stuff. Do do, do businesses grow? Because they have people that like will them to grow or do they grow because they have amazing processes? Like, 
what's more important, an amazing process or an amazing person? Does that make sense? It does make sense. I think that it's quote unquote, an amazing team, amazing people. So clearly in the startup stage, you know, it's all about the people. None of the, none of what I'm saying matters, you know, hustle, take risks, be courageous, show grit, get product market fit until you start getting pulled forward by market demand. Now then every competitor knows that people are the difference, right? So the irony is that if you can focus and design the things that I'm, I'm focusing on with you, right? If you can align on the right strategy, design in the right and reinforce the right culture, get the structure to support the strategy. And there's like clear roles for the right people to play that are like in energizing for the right leaders. Put in place the right processes so that those, those, you know, the people involved who are playing a role in the structure, they buy into the process, they buy into the culture, they're getting more energy out of their job than they would if you hadn't designed those things in. Like great people don't want to work up in an environment that's like pushing the rock uphill. Right? You're looking to get it rolling downhill, and your job as a leader is to design that environment, design it to scale, so that the right things tend to happen. And if you can, irony is that every competitor is out there looking for great people. They don't even know what they're looking for. They're saying, we need great people. We need great people. Okay? If you took a step back to do what I'm suggesting and say, okay, here's the culture. Here's the roles we need performing in the structure. This is how we get after it, right? This is our processes. Who's a good fit? That alone would allow you to like just winnow things down to like, hey, this opportunity will speak really clearly and powerfully to the right individuals. If you don't set it up like that, then you're just a me too. Okay, let's move into the leadership team. What's important in the leadership team? And then I kind of want to go through a little bit about how, which has been a huge hit in our business over the last few weeks and months, how a great leadership team is run and how a meeting is run in particular. Yeah. Okay. So I have found that a CEO needs to lead through a leadership team. And the leadership team needs to consist of a critical mass of functional heads. So it's a, it's not a sales team, it's a cross-functional team, right? Representative from sales, brand marketing, product management, engineering, finance, HR, whatever, okay? And the reason why that team needs to be in place is because of mass. Mass isn't size or volume, mass is resistance to change. And so you'll hear me in my work use a, a concept I call gather the mass, which means that resistance to change is everywhere. Your head of sales has one idea. Your head of marketing has another. Your head of product has another, right? Your customers have it. The environment's always changing. It's all this resistance to change. So as a leader, you need some mechanism to gather in the mass and keep it aligned under changing conditions towards the right outcomes. Okay? We're not agents. We're humans. And what, what one thing humans have in common across cultures is that we want to participate. If we can participate in the decisions our resistance to change is much lower, right? And our commitment to implement is much, much higher. Are you with me? It's like the difference between do it because you're told to or do it because you <laughs> understand you participated in the solution, okay? Yeah. Well, all we're trying to do with the leadership team is to have a regular cadence where you get a critical mass of functional heads around. And first thing we do in that meeting is, is we build shared consciousness. Okay, and by the way, it's really critical 
that this leadership team meeting and other key decision-making meetings are facilitated. They're not facilitated by the CEO. The CEO needs to be CEO. The facilitator can be another member on the team is facilitating that group through a process. And if it's a good process, what you'll see is that the team, the resistance to change comes down, the commitment, the good decisions, better decisions get made, and the commitment to help each other is much higher. So if a CEO is trying to be CEO and put pressure on the system to evolve and you know, express their frustrations or express their joys or whatever, it's almost impossible to simultaneously run a good process. But am I being clear? Oh, yeah. Okay. So your leadership team meetings are facilitated, right? And that allows the, the, in the leader to like be CEO and have a good process run for them. It's huge. Okay. So... All I'm trying to do, again, the principle is gather the mass. Mass resistance to change. you got to keep that mass going to keep the momentum going. The leadership team is just designed to get anything under the table, up on the table. So we have shared consciousness as a team, including the dashboard metrics, where any hot items are showing up across the organization. The team actually goes on a break after that first part of the meeting, and then we sift through those items that came up and we're going to uh, make decisions and prioritize those items. When you say we, who the, the team leaves, who stays back? The CEO and the facilitator are going to, facilitator is going to present those items to the CEO to kind of allocate them into different buckets. And then the team comes back and it's very focused decision-making or and uh, accountability assignments. And well, again, the bigger picture is you got to have some regular cadence, gather the mass in, shh, go. Go. One metaphor, I don't know if you heard this, but I use when I'm training a facilitator and a CEO in, is a beehive. So again, I like principles that you can see across domains. And a, a beehive is an insanely complex adaptive system. A beehive produces like three to five times its weight in honey every season. It's life and death stakes, right? So notice every bee has a role to perform. There's no lazy bees. There are artist bees that go out and explore. Cool. They, on a regular cadence, they come back to the hive. They bring information back. And then there's this very vigorous decision-making process. <laughs> you know? No, we should do this. Bam! Decision gets made and every bee goes back. And you'll see this cadence again. You'll see it everywhere in nature, actually. In, out, heartbeat, breath. That's how we process uh, through all our, our brain, right? We take in all the stimuli. We got to synthesize it, make decisions, and go. And so, all I'm trying to create is a beehive <laughs> where the team comes together, boom, goes back after it. That's all. So, in that if you don't 15 have a process or a highly optimized process, it's going to be very hard to drive exponential growth and keep it going. So, everybody arrives at the meeting. They all have a one or two minute kind of update on what's going on in their department. They, they bring up issues and things they want to discuss. They go around the table. Then the moderator has scripted all that. Everybody leaves for 15 minutes. What buckets is the CEO putting stuff into? Yeah. I'll, I'm going to answer that. It's a great question. And I just want to give a little color to that first part of the meeting. Well, most meetings suck, right? Yep. They all, someone's yeah. going blah, 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 blah. And it's not relevant to the others. And they talk a lot and there's a little 
very little questioning or feedback. And what we're trying to do is flip that polarity so that there's a written, brief, you know, colorful anecdote about what they achieved last week, what their number one focus this week, and where they need each individual might need support. And then I want three times as much time given to questions and feedback from their peers about anything related to their role. And that it takes a, a little bit of time for a team to get that going. But once it does, then we're starting to really quickly build shared consciousness and we know where the hot, those hot items really are. Okay. Cause they also, the model's designed, this leadership model's designed so that a person can't be good in a meeting and a wench outside of the meeting. You know, like they can't show up because there's so much feedback and visibility points happening. Like you got to perform as a leader in the meeting and out. Okay. Anyway, like answer your question. So we have this list of hot items. The facilitator has this list of hot items and the CEO has these buckets to put them into. And one bucket is, uh, yeah, this came, we're not going to track it. It came up. I'm just trusting Sue and Dave to go figure it out, right? I know they've probably already spoken about it. It's not worth tracking at this level. Next bucket is, uh, it is worth tracking at this level. And we're going to put it into our leadership team action plan. And we're going to follow up on it in this meeting. An action item will have a classification. Like it, it's coming back as a big strategic decision that needs to be made. Or it's coming back as just a, a, an update on that it was accomplished and what happened. Okay. Uh, third bucket is a CEO soapbox. A soapbox metaphor is the CEOs on a wooden upturned box in the public square. And then it's an, it's an announcement. It's a message. It's not a proposal or a debate. And then the fourth bucket is called a type one decision, a proposal. It's actually a written proposal. It's a big strategic decision that's hard to come back from. So we want to align the mass. It's not a democracy, by the way, really critical. It's participative decision-making process with the authority vested in the implementer. So a proposal comes in, the team gets a chance, you know, read it, get clarifying questions, get their reactions heard. And that always shapes to be a better decision if any decision is going to get made. That then, because we participated in shaping it as a team, the drive to support it and implement it quickly is measurably higher than if I'm just getting this thing thrown on my lap, I haven't had a chance to influence it, right? So that's the spirit. Those are the four buckets. Not going to track it. We are going to track it. CEO soapbox or a type one big strategic proposal to make. Okay. And you, and you talked about the proposal, which has been a game changer. What qualifies a proposal and what is a proposal and how is it presented? Like, give me the, the 101 on what a proposal means. So this comes out of uh, uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon. And I was running a version of this, but he, I mean, that guy's always about 15 steps ahead of me and it takes me a while to catch up what he's doing. But you'll notice the media cap, you know, will, will, will focus on some of these concepts, but they're, they're, they're not understanding the underlying principles. So you'll see the media focus on six page narrative. <gasps> Amazon doesn't allow PowerPoint. <gasps> they make everyone write a six page narrative, you know, narrative. <gasps> oh my God. How would we ever live without PowerPoint? Right. Okay. Jeff Bezos is a smart dude. He, he really gets it. It's not six pages of the magic number. It's not, it's, it's no lot more than six pages. Yeah. 
And if you need an appendix, you know, with pro formas or whatever, sure, add it in there. But that's the spirit. It is to make a business case. So write it up like it's a freaking business case. This is a big strategic, you know, decision that could be lucrative, but it's going to require we really gather the organizational mass behind it. It's going to be, it would be really hard to come back from it after we set out down this path. So we're going to take the time to make a good decision up front and get a critical mass of people shaping it, understanding it. So then when we shift into implementation mode, it's fast. Okay. So uh, that's the spirit of a type one proposal. And really critically, not obviously not every decision is a type one proposal then. And because the purpose of having this structure is to push authority deep, right? Give high autonomy. There's a couple other little tricks, but suddenly you have a very much a highly autonomous organization who's can take the ball and run with it on the less strategic things. Okay. But the more strategic critical things are coming back into the leadership team as a proposal, which as a CEO allows you to have that right mix of pushing authority deep, but also having the right level of visibility and control. Right. There's this movement out there, right? Last, last five, 10 years of like anti-hierarchy, no meetings, self-organizing, two pizza box teams, right? You with me? And if you look behind the scenes, you'll see that actually what's there is that there is a designer, right? They've designed in an architecture, like a game for other people to play. And that's just so critical that as a CEO, if you just delegate and try to hire good people, great culture, and everyone's self-organized, you're quickly going to have a mess on your hands. There has to be an architecture behind the scenes like this, like type one, type two decision. So you're pushing authority deep on the low level stuff and uh, still have visibility and control on the high level stuff. Let's talk about, all right, we're product market fit. You're working with this team. Like just what are some things that fall into a type one decision? Okay. Let's use Fort Capital as an example. Okay. You guys own a lot of, lot of commercial property around Dallas, Fort Worth certainly wouldn't treat a, a big property acquisition as a leadership team level type one decision. But let's say you're going to expand to a new, a new state, right? New regulations probably requires a change in structure, a big investment, big risk, hard to come back from. I mean, what would be worse than having most of your properties in one geographic region? And then you've got an odd duck across the country, right? Yep. It should be pretty crappy, right? So before you went down that path, I would align the mass. I'd write up, have a, you know, the right person write up a type one proposal to make the business case. We're going into Kentucky. Okay. I'm just making a silly example, but that like you with me. So the things that are more status quo, more normal, we've already operationalized. You're never treating those as type one decision. By the way, a type one decision is for those who haven't heard the metaphor, it's a good metaphor. A one-way door, type one, one-way door. Doesn't even have a window, man. We cross that threshold, we're locked out. We can't come back. Type two decision, type two-way door. It's got a window, it swings both ways. Hey, we make mistakes all the time. That's how we learn. We step back, we cross the threshold, we can come back. It's cool. Low, much lower risk. So the typical company... And and like, let's just talk about Fort Capital and and some of the maybe poor things that I did as a CEO early on. Would is when companies just go, look, we're going to Kentucky. 
Me and the COO talked about it. We're going to let some people know about it, but the decision's been made. Nobody really knows why. Nobody really is like bought in. And you just kind of like force it down on the company. And what you're saying is we're, we're alleviating all that. If we're not all go- marching together, then it's going to be a failure. It's going to cause a lot of entropy at some yeah. point. Well, there's some subtleties there. One is the secret to business growth and momentum is actually not rapid decision-making in isolation. We've all, you've had the experience like, hey, uh, CEO and I decided it over coffee and you come back and you announce it. And there's like a, just a huge pushback because we didn't understand all the downstream implications. If you just take in the time to gather those, the roles that are going to be impacted downstream, upstream and before the decision's made, they'll understand it better. You'll understand it better. You'll make a better decision, right? You're having different perspectives around it with me. Yeah, yeah. Then once the decision's made, it doesn't have to take a long time. Once you make the decision, the implementation will be smooth, much faster, right? That's what creates momentum. That's the cadence for momentum. You with me? Okay. As the company gets larger, you don't want to have a culture where others feel empowered to say no. It's like the easiest thing in the world for a company, for the hierarchy to just start to say no. No, 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 right? (laughs) Yeah. And they start to stuff innovation. Okay, so you're trying to empower individuals to say, yeah, you're accountable for this. If your decision is going to impact others, give the common respect and wisdom to just go gather the mass. Go seek perspective first of those who are going to be impacted downstream. But you have the charter, you have the autonomy. As long as you have the budget, rock and roll. Seek perspective, rock and roll. Yeah. But if this is a big strategic decision, big investment of capital, there's a process for anyone to bring that proposal into the leadership team and bypass any of the no's. You know, because it might be like a really genius proposal, really genius opportunity. Okay. Now, culturally, you have to have a value of it's okay. As I'm seeking perspective, it has to be okay for, I'm not seeking permission. Right. I'm seeking your perspective, (laughs) not your permission. And the principle here is it's okay to disagree and commit. It's okay to, yeah, Chris, I think you're being, I don't think this is a smart idea, but uh, I get where you're coming from. I uh, Let me know how I can help you, right? I commit to helping you no matter what. That's the culture you're trying to create. I hear you. So just to clarify that thing, I could have told you all this stuff before we started working together, right? And you'd be like, Sort of getting it. Just like your listeners are probably like, this guy's a little weird, sort of getting it, right? It's really easy to misunderstand this stuff. Once you're living it and experiencing it, you're like, oh, it's not a democracy. Oh, I don't have to slow down and take a vote. You know, you're not running a city government. Why are you taking a vote? Yeah. You know, <laughs> like rock and roll, like, you know, just put a little bit of architecture so that we ensure that we're doing the right things and we're doing it quickly and we're doing them as an aligned team. That's all that I'm saying. Yep. So when we found you, it we were having a whole nother issue or we had a whole nother thing we wanted to start with. And that's how we came across you. And God bless, we had that problem where we wouldn't have found you. But at the time, I was CEO still and we were talking about, you know, possibly transitioning Jason to C- CEO. But if we did that, we needed like a COO to replace him or a chief of staff. And then we read about your Queen of England problem. 
And I don't even know what I'm really asking you here, but let's just talk about the situation that we had and like, what are the common problems that, that businesses that start hiring executives run into when they're, cause, cause I'll just tell you how we were looking at the problem, which I think is how a lot of people look at it is like, oh, we'll just throw a body at that. We'll throw a COO at this to, to take over the operations of the business and that'll solve it all. And you were like, whoa, buddy, don't do that. Let's talk about that and then we'll bring it home. Okay. So there's a lot of ways to organize a business. Most companies still do a, a legacy approach of, um, I, we have a, let's say we have a very visionary founder. We're going to uh, marry him or her up with a president and COO who's going to run all internal operations so that the CEO founder can focus on market evangelism, raising money strategy. Yeah. And you and Jason actually ran, and I call that the Queen of England structure, because often, I would say more than, you know, I would say the majority of the time, the founder, CEO, realizes pretty late that they just designed themselves out of their own business. Which is what I did. Yeah. And they, first it feels pretty great, but, you know, it, a lot of it, Almost actually all of it depends on the relationship between the founder and the president COO. It's like a marriage. Okay. That relationship's working. Uh, you probably make it work. That's why that structure, Queen of England structure is so popular. It's just a lot, just a lot depends on that single point of failure. Okay. If it goes wrong, like it went wrong for me, went wrong for Jeff Bezos, went wrong for Larry Ellison, went wrong for a lot of different companies. They realize, whoa, I just like, really put a lot of systemic risk in the business by trying to do it this way. And there's better way, you know, there are alternative ways to do it, which is what I teach. But what happens when that founder tries the Queen of England structure is, you know, I mentioned they, they kind of suddenly feel like I've designed myself out of my business. I don't know where to put the lever anymore. I don't know where to put my energy and innovation without causing a lot of disruption and turmoil. And it's really important to design in a lever where that founder, who's probably still the biggest innovating force in the business, can deploy that, right? But the rest of the business has to be set up to digest that. It's all that structure is also hard in the president and COO because they have to like hold the ceiling up with this crazy innovating force and this founder above them. And they're trying so hard to orchestrate the perfect internal environment, right? People into the right roles, you know, keep it going, execute on the short range, manage the long range, keep everyone happy, and they'll feel squeezed. It's hard. It's a hard uh, role to perform. And there's variations on that. You guys ran that structure better as well as any company I've ever seen. And I think a lot of that is honestly, you are on an accelerated growth curve in that your president CEO, Jason, is a really mature, astute guy. And you guys had a really have a really have a really strong relationship. And I know, you know, no relationship is static, right? I know it went through ups and downs, but I like you guys made it work. I think what you'll see is we've changed that structure uh, that now Jason's going to probably show up a lot more innovative and energetic and committed to growth. Where before he had to show up more like I got to catch and manage and <laughs> ensure, you know, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed, right? So I bet if we did another assessment on Jason uh, in a few months, we'd see a different style showing up. You know, you, you would be able to tell me what's your yep. reaction. 
No, I, I agree so much. Yeah, it was it was interesting. We didn't know that we were running it that way, but it was always that feeling. I mean, the last two years I was in very few meetings. I know Jason was playing good cop, bad cop. And I've already seen in the last month a big change. I think what was crazy was I kept using my, like you said, that energy, that innovative thing is like, look, if you leave me bored for too long, I'll go break something just so I can fix it. And, you know, thank God I, you know, I'll give myself a little bit of credit. It's the founder dilemma, which you can read about. I was able to identify it and diagnose it and honestly get out of the way, which I think is what most people, they'll stay in the way forever. And I know that I'm a lot happier, you know, just with the state of things. I know Jason is, and I know the team has a lot more clarity. And so we were, I think we were steps away from like hiring this other chief of staff COO, which would have been a mistake. And I don't want to ramble on, but I just want to ask you one more thing. And then we can wrap up with a few personal questions. But you said Jeff Bezos and Larry Ellison got it wrong. What do you mean by that? I know what I meant was they had tried the Queen of England structure themselves. They're just two two examples that jumped to mind. And they have publicly said, man, I'm never repeating that mistake again. So what did they do? They went to the leadership team model that I teach. Got it. Okay. And actually, um, I don't know what Oracle's doing now. It's been a long time since I tracked it. But uh, and obviously, Bezos has stepped up into the chairman role. and But the leadership team model at Amazon for sure. Yep. We're going to do a part two because there's a few more things I want to cover, but I, I could keep you here all day. I just want to ask you a couple personal questions and then we'll bring it home. Yeah. All right. Here we go. What is uh, one thing that you believe in that most of the people around you don't believe? Well, I'm going to go with the low-hanging fruit of finite energy and time. I live my whole life not aware of that concept. And you can build a very uh, productive, successful, happy life by just noticing where the energy drains are showing up. And if you, if you notice one, change it or change your attitude about it, and you'll free up more capacity to uh, be more of who you are, right? Focus more on the things that really add to your energy. All right. How can people uh, find uh, your business? Organizationalphysics.com. Organizationalphysics.com. Lex. Man, literally the journey we've been on, I know it's only been a few months, but you have had one of the biggest impacts on me. This episode was incredible. And I just want to thank you again for joining me today. I really thank you for making the time. And I hope I was able to add a little bit of value to people's lives. And I really appreciate you and your thoughtfulness of your your questions, Chris. Cheers. Cheers, buddy. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.